leave your guitar, I'm gonna use it in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you are? Okay. Wait, is it turned on though? It's turned on. And okay. Ready to go. Yeah, because I won't. It's live. I won't know how to do that. All right, all right. So uh, I love that song, that uh, Billy Joel song. It, the idea of what's what strikes us in the middle of the night, right? We've all had these waking dreams or these moments that we wake up in the middle of the night and we start looking for something. We start searching for answers. For a lot of us in the middle of the night, maybe not a lot of us, but I'll I'll go ahead and say for me in the middle of the night, sometimes what wakes me up is something I cannot shake. And then the more I think about it, the more it spirals, right? And then the more I'm trying to distract myself so that I can get back to sleep. Uh, But there is something to this Billy Joel song about transfiguration that I want to think about today, about what runs through life, what we are actually all connected to, but forget so often, right? And that's where we find ourselves sometimes trying to get control and spiraling out of control. That's usually what happens, right? So here's a wonderful saying, a wonderful writing, a text by, um, quote by Albert Einstein. He said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious, This from the famed scientist. It is the source of all true art and science to the one to whom the emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe. That one is as good as dead. So, um... Anthony DeMello, some of you all know who he was. He was a Jesuit priest and a, a workshop leader and a, a basically a spiritual leader out of the Christian tradition, but out of the Jesuit tradition. And he wrote a lot of wonderful books. But as a storyteller, he had this really, this really tact for knowing a story that speaks to the heart of something. Just a nice, succinct little story. He talks about on the evils and disadvantages of religion, he said, the master was once asked to speak about this, the evils and divisiveness of religion. And so he, he told the story of a little boy and a little boy's girlfriend. And when she asked him, when she asked her boyfriend, are you a Presbyterian? The little boy answered and said, no, we belong to another abomination. <laughs> so we have this slide of, um, I can't see, so I'm going to assume it gets up there. Let me know if it's not up there. We have this slide, this sort of a, 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 what, what I would guess is a 14th, 15th, 16th century representation of Jesus on the transfiguration with the disciple, with Peter, and then with the other disciples, two others, maybe three, with him as the story says. And then you see Elijah on one side and you see Moses on the other side. Now, the minute I saw this, it made my mind go somewhere else. Because for one thing, I used to see this story in one way, right? When I, was a, when I belonged to the Bible church and the Baptist church and I did my stint with, Christian, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and, and Campus Crusade and all that, I really understood this story as this, sac- this divine imprint, this stamp of approval that the literal interpretation of everything in the Bible is to be taken true. And Jesus, I mean, I took it to sort of this typical what do you do with a story like this? And then when I began to deconstruct it, and I began to sort of see my, after seminary training and then after traveling around the country for 25 years as a storyteller and a musician, I began to sort of rethink all these stories. For one thing, I was hearing other stories from around the world, other faith tradition stories even. I was even working with people who were from the Muslim tradition telling stories at festivals, and we would sit back and we would share Nasrud and Hoja stories and laugh together and then wonder, how is it that you're a Christian, I'm a Muslim, and we're laughing together? And I'm smiling like what else could we be doing right I mean we're all sh- anyway so I was I was learning so much from all these other exposures I came back then and what do you do with something you deconstruct 
what do you do with it? How do you understand it again? You know, how do we rethink it? And so, as I saw this story, I, I'm telling you, I, I look at the lectionary and I'm going like, really? I don't really want to preach on this. I don't like this. And my mind went here. My mind went to these next things. I started thinking of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> I don't know why. I think I was thinking of trios, and then I thought this next one, you know, the more modern version of Charlie's Angels, and actually there's like, I think, three variations on Charlie's Angels now. And then I went to Star Wars, and then I started thinking of all the trios. I failed to get a picture of Three Stooges. I thought, why did I not think of them? I thought, Three Stooges are great. But then I thought about the Matrix trio, right? The Matrix, I mean, I know a lot of you didn't watch the Matrix, I haven't seen that yet. You need to, it's all about reality. Anyway, it's, um, then I went to the Lord of the Rings trio, right? We have almost all of us seen the Lord of the Rings and seen that trio. And, uh, and then, then, of course, I went to Harry Potter. And then I thought about, okay, then there's also, I mean, every religious tradition has trios, if you think about it. The, uh, the, uh, the Scandinavian has Thor and Odin and Loki. And then, uh, um, and then, of course, we have on the Christian tradition, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, but then I wanted to come back to this glowing um, uh, um, depiction of Jesus. Is that what's up there? Yeah. Okay, good. We're working. We're, it's working. Yes. So um, I thought about this whole story and it occurred to me that this really is about something deeper like the river of life. This idea of transfiguration. We think of it as being, or maybe traditionally used to think of it as being sort of the stamp of approval of God on Jesus being Messiah. But that really is a story in retrospect when we understand that the Gospels were written anywhere between 15 to 50 years after Jesus' death. And Luke was one of the latter ones to be written down. And so Luke is already arising out of a following community of Jesus. A community that's already been following now. The temple is, is uh, it's right before the temple falls, but there's lots of tensions. There's already a scattering of Jews and Christian followers, or what were called really the, the way of the anointed. They weren't really called Christians back then. They were called those who followed Jesus, the way of the anointed. There were so many splinter groups, in fact. It's hard to forget. It's easy to forget. I mean, that there was so much diversity back in those first, that first century or two after Jesus' life. And so this is being read back in retrospect. But it occurred to me something else is being said here altogether, if that's all you see, because I love the story the way that, that, that Luke puts it. The way Mark puts it is even more fun, because in parentheses, in Mark's text, in parentheses, when Peter says, Lord, maybe we should do something, we should put something, we should build something here, then in parentheses it says, because he was scared and he couldn't think of anything better to say. <laughs> I love Mark's version. I think it's a little raw. It's also the earliest version of the gospel that we have in, in terms of sources. And so I love that idea because it's true to Peter's character, right? I mean, think about the, if, if, if we were simply thinking of transfiguration in terms of this magical, miraculous, supernatural moment happening, we miss the point entirely. It's only a, a few months later that Peter denies Jesus. Here he saw this amazing, radical, miraculous thing, not to mention all the other stuff he's supposedly seen, and then he denies Jesus when he's gathered around the fire with others and Jesus has been crucified. So we're missing the point if we start looking at things too concretely, which is always, I think, the challenge for us as we explore what it means to be involved in Christianity and to be involved in spirituality.
is how to then do we come to see something more meaningful? Now, Jesus tells them later, he actually tells them when he goes back down, he says, you're all going to be looking for a sign, but the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And, and what I want to suggest to you is then again, there again, what people have done since the 1800s, since the late 1800s, actually a British guy by the name of, uh, I forget his first name, Darby, minister, Anglican minister in England, was the first one to introduce sort of the idea of a rapture and the idea of an end times, of reading the scripture in terms of that. So it actually is a very, very late development to try to understand these things as being predictions of what's going to happen, right? So if you, didn't, if, you, if you start to look back and you realize what Jesus said is the only sign you get, most of those folks interpreting things literally try to make this into a, well, Jesus was talking about he's going to die and then three days later he's going to raise because the sign of Jonah is what? Jonah and the whale? We know that story? Most of us heard it as kids. Was it a whale? Does it say whale anywhere? It's probably a big old grouper. It might have been a grouper. We don't know. It was a big fish. But we think of that as being what this story is about. It has nothing to do with that because the whole sign of Jonah had to do with what Jonah was sent to Nineveh to do. To tell them that God loves them and that they need to change their lives and live according to that love, live according to that relationship, that covenant that Abraham was first given about being a blessing to the people, to the nations. And to, to Jonah's great disappointment, they change. These are horrible people, the Assyrians, and they change. They repent. They change. And Jonah goes up on the hill, if you remember, and he puts himself underneath an ivy there, kind of a shade tree that he creates, and he sulks. And Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. I mean, people, come on. That's, that's hard. I'd much rather it be three days in a whale and we're all going to get to go to heaven, and we're all just going to raise up in the, in the sky with the rapture, and we don't have to love our enemies. We don't have to be merciful. We don't have to deal with what's difficult, right? And Jesus says, the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah. God is merciful. Be merciful like God. Now, the traditionalists have often long seen that and missed the whole point of it, that, Jesus, that Jonah was the redemptive transcendent against the stream force of mercy and that everybody belongs there. If you look, um, the earliest understanding of the universe was this thing we call the three-tiered understanding of the universe. Now, you'll also notice the earth is kind of the bottom there and you'll notice the sun, the moon, and all the stars rotate around the earth, right? This was a common understanding. We were the center of the universe. Everything ro rotates around us. Some of us still think that way right? <laughs> Some people we know maybe still think that way, center of the universe. But, but what we learn much later, of course, is that we're not, that, the, that, the, that our reality is more, um, uh, not heliocentric, what is it, people? Heliocentric. heliocentric, thank you, yes, the other, not, yeah, the other, not geocentric, but heliocentric. So what we've learned, though, is that the Old Testament into the New Testament times was all about having this under control, understanding reality in a very concrete way, even though it was very much about myth and story. It was still that they understood this reality to be all within their grasp, essentially. So that when you climb a mountain, you can see right from the story here, from the universe, from the picture of the three-tiered universe, when you climb a mountain, who are you getting closer to? You're getting closer to God. So the stories always speak of Jesus going up into a mountain. They always speak of people going up into the mountain with Jesus to pray. 
This next cartoon, I think, captures where a lot of us may have experienced our, our, our faith early on. Maybe to this day still struggle with that. Welcome to the faith. Now is your complimentary box, outside of which you should never think again. <laughs> the, I think for us, the challenge with this story, like a lot of the Bible stories, is that we've dismissed them, perhaps. Maybe you're there with me where I was. In our deconstruction, we've dismissed the story and we've missed the magic or the possibility of what's really being presented in these stories because we think of it as being either primitive or, or, or childlike or magical. And the transfiguration is really about how are our lives changed in terms of mercy? How are our lives transformed, literally transformed, in how we see the world around us now. So when Jesus is standing there with Moses and he's standing there with Elijah, he's standing there with the law, but he's also standing there with the prophets. He's standing there with the whole picture. And what Jesus is mediating is that all of these are mediated, all of these are defined by compassion and mercy. And the challenge for us, I think, is to find out where we find that, to explore how we see that. So that what we're seeing are uh, transfigurations all the time. Let's see. There we go. So when my son was very young, Timothy, I took him out to learn how to, to uh, learn karate me and my son decided to do something together. We decided to take karate lessons at the local YMCA. Tim was six years old. He said, I want to be a karate master, just like the karate kid. So I said, all right, we'll do this together. After the first lesson, Tim came home. We drove back home. He got out of the car. He didn't walk up to the door. He stopped. He wouldn't come inside. I said, Tim, what's wrong? He said, Dad, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I said, Tim, it's your first lesson. He said, I know, but I was pretty good. Do you see how I kicked? I said, yeah, everybody saw how you kicked. I mean, it was like everywhere. He said, yeah, but I'm pretty good. I can kick pretty good. I said, that's right. He said, well, how long before I can be a black belt? <laughs> how long, Dad? Oops. How long do you think it's going to take? How long, Dad? Ah, uh, see. Yeah, there we go. I haven't done this. I'm just hoping I remembered how to do this. How long, Dad? You know I hate to have to wait. Well, I'm beginning to think that I'm on the brink of discovering just how, how I get there right now. So I said to Tim, I said to him, this is a good opportunity for a teaching moment. Being a storyteller and having my first year of being on the road, I'd learned already a lot of stories. So I said, Tim, there was once this Zen master and his student was going to learn from him how to be a, a, a Zen priest like himself, a master. And he said to his master, he said, how long before I can be like you? And the master said, it will take you 10 years of study. And the student looked up at his master and said, that's a long time. And Tim looked up at me and he said, 10 years, that's forever. I said, I know, that's what the student said to his master. So the student said, what if I work really, really, really hard? And the master looked at his student and said, then that will take you 20 years. <laughs> and Tim looked up at me and he said, but dad, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, that's what the student said. 
And so the student said, Master, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if I work really hard, if I sleep and I dream and I wake and all my moments, I'm thinking about how to be like you, how long? And the master said, if you do all of that, it will take you at least 30 years. And then he looked at the, at the student and he said, student, he said, young man, when you realize that where you are right now is where you need to be and you devote your attention to that, then you will have achieved what you need to achieve. And my son looked at me with his eyes kind of open wide and smiled and he said, yeah, but how long before I can get my black belt? <laughs> so this went on for weeks. After every class we'd get home and he'd say, you think I'm ready? I said, Tim, you haven't even gotten your yellow belt yet or your gold belt, your green belt. I said, there's a lot of steps. And he said, yeah, but I'm working really hard. How long, Dad, do you think it's gonna take? How long, Dad? You know I hate to have to wait I'm beginning to think that I'm on the brink That I already know how to get there right now So it was about uh, seven weeks into the class And Tim was really frustrated And so I told him a story and I said, you know son I said there was once a, a guy who lived down at the end of the street and everybody in the neighborhood knew that he was an old miser. He was just kind of stingy. But one day they saw him sitting out on his porch. And a couple of guys were walking by. They saw the old guy sitting on the porch. And he had a pot. And it was glistening in the sunlight. And they walked up to him closer to see what it was. And on closer inspection, they saw the pot was filled with gold. Gold nuggets. Tim was kind of interested. And I said, the two guys looked at him and said, how did you get that? And the guy, the old guy looked at him, dumped it out on the porch and said, it's easy. Anybody can do this. So the two guys were going like, really? And he says, yeah, all you got to do is you got to put mud and rocks in here. You spit and then you stir it up with a stick. They said, that's all you have to do? He said, that's all I ever did. So he gave them the pot. They took the pot home. Tim said, wow. Is it that easy? I said, well, the two guys thought maybe so. The two guys took the pot home. They did just what the old man told them. I said, for days, those two guys put rock and mud and they spit and they stirred. And you know what they got, Tim? And Tim said, gold? And I said, no, they got mud and rock and spit. <laughs> and their arms were hurting. So they went back the next day or two days later and they went back and they said, you lied to us. And the old man was sitting on the porch going, I don't lie. They said, well, you said that we'd get gold. We didn't get gold. And the old man was going like, well, did you, did you do it? I said, you put the rock and you put the... I said, yes, 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 we did that. Rock, mud, spit, stir. We did that a hundred times. And then the old man's eyes lit up. And he looked at the two men standing there and he said, wait a minute. Did I tell you that while you're stirring, you must not even once think about the gold? So I told that story to Tim and I waited for him to say something and he just kind of smiled and walked away. <laughs> and as I noticed him walking away, he was shaking his head back and forth. And I realized that he realized you ask dad a question, you get a stupid story that doesn't make any sense. And it worked, he never asked me the question again. <laughs> but then after about six weeks of that class, we were standing at the end of class and they did what they did every end of class. They invite the students to line up the master and his assistant stand in front of you. And then he calls people ahead to come, to come forward in front of the class. If you got an award, if you got some kind of acknowledgement, maybe your parents said you did something great at school that day. Tim had never been called before. And we were kind of late starting into this class. Everybody else seemed to know each other. So he was a little surprised when the sensei called his name. 
And Tim walked up quietly and bowed to the sensei and the sensei and the, and the teacher's assistants, they bowed back to him. And then the sensei said, Tim, we have been watching you and you seem to be working really hard. We're going to go ahead and move you on ahead so you can catch up with the rest of the class. And then the assistant reached out from behind him and got the gold belt, which is like a third step in the process for white, yellow, and gold. And we're going to give you the gold belt, and they wrapped it around his waist, and they tied it traditionally, and they all bowed, and everybody clapped, and Tim's face was beaming as he walked back to the line. And then the sensei continued to call other names. Tim was pulling on the sleeve of my white gi, my karate suit, and he was saying, Dad. And I said, Tim, not now. And he said, but Dad. And I said, Tim, shh. And then he said, Dad, and he pulled so hard, I said, Tim, what? He said, not once did I think about the gold. <laughs> How long, Dad, do you think it's gonna take? How long, Dad, you know I hate to have to wait. I think I know now, I think I know how. The most important time is what we do right now. So I want to skip ahead here to this last quote. Um, can we get down to the last quote here? Actually, actually, if we, can get to the, if we can get to two things, if you can go to where the trees are and then we'll go to the earth rise and I'll just wrap it up with these last two thoughts. Um, this, the, uh, the poet Christian Wyman describes something wonderful when we look at these trees. Are we seeing the trees now? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Christian Wyman talks about when he talks about his faith is that he talks about doubt as being one of the most important steps we can find towards enriching our faith. To begin to ask questions, to begin to approach our moments with more humility and mystery than with decisiveness. Like when Peter tries to really build structures there, what he's literally trying to do is he says, let's build altars and let's call this moment a special holy moment and we'll freeze it in time, which is what so many people do with their religion, right? It's, it, it stops being a dynamic force for change and it becomes a force for oppression or, to, uh, uh, or accommodation or assimilation. And so what, what Christian Wyman is saying, he writes this and he says, he describes seeing another reality beyond the one that he normally sees as he was seeing inside this forest where he was standing. He said, I suddenly saw a tree inside the tree. And like the disciples, he concludes that what he is witnessing is not the life of men or the life of, or, of normality as he would normal, normally see it. What he then began to see was a single being undefined, countless beings of one mind, whatever it, it had been for him, it was a strange cohesion, he said, beyond the limits of my vision. And then he concluded, this must be where joy comes. How often can we stand in a place and be so present to that place that we no longer are waiting for that place to satisfy us or to speak to us? We are now speaking from deeply within to the space we stand in because we connect with that so deeply. That's really what I think transfiguration invites us into. What, uh, what, the, what the astronaut Alders saw, we go to this next picture, you know the story behind Earthrise? Apollo 8, 1968. When they got up there, they were taking pictures of the moon. Then as they came around the moon, what did they see? But they saw the earth. Wasn't even on the list. 
Nobody even thought of it. I was like, when you get up there, you're going to see this amazing shot of the earth. It's going to be incredible. Make sure you take a picture of it. Nobody even had that on the list. And it's coming around. They're taking pictures of the craters. They see the earth, and they're stunned. It's like, give me the camera. So the others are going like, it's not on the list. Forget the list. Give me the camera. And they take a picture. When he got back down, he said, I was one of those people who used to think God was up here somewhere. I remember as an adolescent, I used to think, well, God's up there somewhere. There's some kind of machine, some kind of superpower, some kind of answer. And then he said, when I got up there, I looked back and I realized we're the answer. This is who we are. This is what we have. This is our sacredness. This is our power. So this last quote I want to leave you with. I told this story in the blog post that I sent out of Linda and I going fishing, or not fishing, but going walking in Petoskey in the woods along Bear River and coming across a fisherman who found a salmon there. He was, he, the salmon were starting to jump and he was fishing for the salmon, but he kind of stopped. And as the salmon were jumping, we were asking him, how does that happen that salmon jump? And he said, they jump because they, he described the whole process, how they do it. And it was quite an intricate kind of process, you know, that over time they evolve this way. Something I forgot to do as he was describing the process and smiling. I forgot to ask him, how long have you come here and been watching the salmon? Never occurred to me to ask that question. Because you see, that's really our spiritual journey. How many times do we get to be present, not because we've determined and we figured it out, but because we're still trying to figure it out. And then after a while, something appears in the cloud and we suddenly see something transformed. The way T.S. Eliot put it is we shall not cease from exploring. That is what's up here, right? Thank you. <laughs> we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started, but to know the place for the first time. Transfiguration. Amen.